Well, good morning, Southside Baptist Church. How is everybody doing? Very good. I'm doing well as well. Okay, so although, uh, as Pastor Corey mentioned, we're not going to be in Philippians uh, today, uh, we will be keeping with the theme of Philippians chapter 4. So instead of seeing how God was faithful uh, to the Apostle Paul in his suffering, this morning we're going to be looking at how God was faithful to Jacob even in his wondering. So over the last uh, several weeks, we've seen how the Apostle Paul has cherished the promises of God, and this morning we are going to see how Jacob scorned those very same promises. In Paul, we have a man who trusted in the work of God, but in Jacob, we have a man who trusted in the works of his hands. Therefore, this morning, two types of believers are set before us. Both have the same God, Both have similar promises, but have very different responses. And so what I want us to see uh, this morning is how Jacob makes the journey from being a believer in God to being a follower of God. How Jacob goes from sitting in the pews at church to running the race of faith like the apostle Paul. You see, every one of us, we all have trouble uh, trusting in God's promises. We all struggle to trust and adopt God's timeline. We, we struggle to remain faithful when God's promises appear to be far off. But in this story, we see a man's journey to faith towards God. So if you feel like you are more like Jacob this morning and not like Paul, today we're going to learn how to be more faithful like the Apostle Paul. So this morning, we have three uh, lessons that the text is going to teach us. Um, The first lesson is this, is that God's faithfulness does not depend upon our faithfulness. God's faithfulness does not depend upon our faithfulness. Uh, We're also going to learn how the promises of God are not like the promises of man. And finally, we are going to learn how to be faithful when God's promises appear to be far off. Um, as uh, Pastor Corey mentioned, um, because we're jumping right into the middle of a story, I have to kind of take some time to summarize about 10 chapters in Genesis. And it'll take me about two minutes, I timed it. And then we're gonna jump right into our text and we're going to read it. Um, so here we go, right? Um, like many good books, the story of Jacob starts off rather quickly. In Genesis chapter 25, Abraham, which is Isaac's father, and Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, are pregnant. And God comes down and says to them, he says, hey guys, you guys are going to have twins, and they are not going to be best friends, right? They're actually going to be enemies, if you know the story. So the twins are born, and Esau comes out first, and then Jacob comes out right uh, right behind him, and he's grasping Esau's heel, which was an ancient picture of someone um, who's a deceiver and trickery. And so they named him Jacob, which in Hebrew means like deceiver or cheater. And it's maybe not as creative as most of our modern names today, but Jacob is going to live up to his name. You see, throughout their childhood, Jacob was the brother that none of us would want, right? He was devious. He was always out to get his brother. He was out to get the affection of his father. And at, at one point, Esau is just fed up with Jacob, and he plots to murder his brother. 
Um, and Jacob mom, Jacob's mom hears of this plot, and she says, Jacob, you have to go to your crazy Uncle Laban, which is far away, or else you're going to die. And Jacob, like a good son, follows his mom's advice, and before he leaves, his father gives him a blessing. And this blessing is very important for our text this morning, because we're going to see the same uh, promise. And this is what Abraham says to his son, or this is what Isaac says to his son, Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. So Jacob flees from his home, and on this long journey, he comes to a place called Luz, um, which is Bethel, and this is the story that Pastor Corey had just read. And Jacob takes a nap, and then he sees this vision, and God appears to him, and he sees this ladder or staircase going up from heaven to earth, and angels are ascending and descending on it, and God makes him a promise and essentially promises him two things. He says, you're going to have a vast land, and you're also going to have offspring like the dust of the earth. It's a lot of children. So God gives him this promise, and this is uh, the story that, like I said, Corey read. And so Jacob finally gets up, and he leaves and goes to his uncle, and he's there for 14 years working for Laban's two daughters, and there's a lot of trickery happening, there's a lot of deception going on, and they're kind of just at each other's throats. And so at this point, God is just fed up with Jacob's wondering and deceit. And God calls out to him, and he says, Jacob, it's time to come home. But instead of going back home, back to Bethel, he goes to live off in some pagan cities. And while there, Jacob's daughter, um, knowing that she's not to uh, mingle with these pagan cities, she goes off, and the text says, to go see the woman of the land. And while she's there, she gets defiled by a man. And Jacob's sons are furious at this point, and they go and plunder the city and kill a whole bunch of people, and now the whole region is upset at Jacob and his family. And at this point in our story, We have a Jacob who is wandering from God. He is walking in disobedience, and his whole family is about to be killed. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35, that's where we're going to be um, for the entire morning. That's Genesis chapter 35. And once you have found your place in your Bibles, uh, I would ask that you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 35, looking at verses uh, 1 through 15. The Lord says this in verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. 
And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alone Bechuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him this, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask, Lord, that you would stir your spirit within us now. Father, that you would come and pierce our hearts with your word, that you would make us into the men and women that we are called to be. For you are a gracious Father, and you have not left us as orphans. Father, I pray that you would remove all anxiety and nerves that I have, that you would come and strengthen me with your mighty hand, and that I would learn to worship as I preach this morning. And I ask this in the everlasting name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys can have your seats. If I'm going too fast, you guys can let me know. Okay, so we're going to be looking now at verse 1, and the first lesson we learned from this text is this. God's faithfulness does not depend on our faithfulness. God's faithfulness does not depend upon our faithfulness. God said to Jacob in verse 1, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Um, and, And it is far too easy to pass over these remarkable words. You see, it is in Jacob's distress, after many wandering years, at the brink of a battle in a foreign land and in the midst of utter chaos, that Jacob hears the familiar voice of God saying, get up and go to Bethel. In Jacob's story several years earlier, God promised that he would be with Jacob and that he would keep Jacob, regardless of where Jacob ended up, regardless of how far Jacob wandered, the promise was still there. And so here in this text, in in these short verse, in these words, we see God's faithfulness to his promise to Jacob, no matter where he went. And just as a uh, Just as the voice of a distant spouse turns miles to inches, so too the voice of God brings close the wandering heart. 
Brothers and sisters, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you have done, no matter how far you think you are, the voice of God can reach you. And when the voice of God reaches Jacob, he says, get up and go back to Bethel. Bethel is where God first met Jacob, or where Jacob first met God, I should say. It is a place where God gave him the promise of Abraham and the personal promise that he would be his God. It is the place where Jacob said to God, if you will be faithful to me, then you shall be my God. But Jacob's longtime disobedience acted as a road away from God. In fact, Jacob, look at that. In fact, uh, Jacob would spend about 15 years. Can you put this back on here? I always have trouble with these. Let's see. Is that any? No. Should I just use this one? Is this possible? I can't move, and that's why I don't like using it. Good? Use this one? Uh, okay, there we go. Sweet. That, that's my testing, right? Uh, let's see. Where were we? Um, yes. So God meets Jacob in first, uh, Jacob first meets God at Bethel. He hasn't met him before. And it's the place where uh, Jacob gets this promise from Abraham. And Jacob's long, he, he goes around for 15 years, wandering from God, wandering from these promises, being unfaithful, deceiving a whole bunch of people, trying to obtain the blessings of God on his own. And God calls out to him in his wandering. And even while Jacob was away for 15 years, God was still faithful to Jacob. When Jacob was poor, when he first went to his uncle Laban, he made him rich with livestock. When Jacob could have no children, he opened the womb. When Jacob confronted Esau a few chapters ago, God melted Esau's heart. He was faithful in the midst of Jacob's unfaithfulness. And still in the distant land, despite his wondering, he calls out to his child and he says, come back to me. Now God's command to come back to Bethel is not just a command. Let's look at verse 1 again in the second part. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 1 in part B. He says, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God calls Jacob to build an altar because God is calling Jacob back to worship. And Jacob is not just to build an altar to God, but he's to build an altar to the God who appears to him. You see, church, the people of God don't just worship a God. We worship the God who has made himself known to us. God has revealed himself to Jacob as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He is the God who keeps, the God who blesses, the God who is there, and he is the God that answers in the time of our distress. Therefore, in the gracious character of our God, rather than calling Jacob and listing his sins, which is what we would do, God reminds Jacob of what he has done for him. Where Jacob might be tempted to think of his failures, God focuses on his redemption. And what Jacob will learn, and what he will keep for the rest of his life, is that the very place he was most reluctant to go was the very place he most needed to be. 
Now, some people might think that it is below God to father such a rebellious child such as Jacob. That somehow it is beneath God to associate himself with such a wayward son who forsook God, who ran away, who spoiled his inheritance, who tried to obtain the blessings in his own right. But church, I'm here to tell you today that God is not ashamed to be called our father. He is not embarrassed to have prodigal sons. He is not unsettled to have daughters who have once lost their way. He is not self-conscious about having children who have rebelled against him. The savior of the world, he runs towards sinners. He runs after prodigal's church. He pursues those who have lost their way and his heart burns for children who are rebellious and have left him. And when he finds us, church, he outbids our sin and he conquers our rebellious hearts and he breaks the power of sin and death. And you know what he does next? He wraps us in white robes of grace that we never deserved. He puts us in a family that we could never earn and he gives us a new life that we could never merit. And we, church, are all like Jacob who have not seen the many blessings of God in our life and it took a tragedy and God's call to Jacob to bring him back home. And when we, when we find ourselves wandering from God, we should know that God is so faithful to us. That he has not abandoned us, that he has not forsook us, that he is always calling us back to him. What a God we have. What a friend in Jesus we have, church. But it is the unfortunate reality that Jacob's experience is the common experience in the Christian life. Whether it is short periods of wandering or maybe long journeys in the wasteland of empty pleasures. But thanks be to God that he meets us at the end of our roads. Thanks be to God that he calls out in the darkest nights of the soul. God is always calling the wandering hearts back to him. But we must, like Jacob, we must be willing to make the journey. When God calls Jacob to Bethel, Jacob must make the ascent to come out of that wayward life, to leave the pleasures of sin, to leave the allure of fulfillment. It is the road, brothers and sisters, that we are all called to walk. It requires humility because it means that we have failed, that we have wandered away from God because God doesn't wander away from us, but we wander from him. We have to acknowledge that we are wrong and that takes humility. We must face the path of destruction that sin leaves behind, that it hurts us and it hurts others. But know that we serve 
a kind and a gentle Father, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In church, we must remember that this journey back to God is never alone. We are all on this journey together. We are all on the pilgrimage to the celestial city, each with our own wounds, but each with a God who promises to bind the wounded. Like Jacob, when we need encouragement, we need to go back to Bethel where God first met us. To go back to that place where we first met God, where we are reminded of his presence, where we went after God in the wilderness, where we were satisfied to be denied by others, satisfied to be disowned by the world as long as we would dwell with him and in his presence. And we, when we go back to that place, just like God said to Jacob, you go to Bethel and you dwell there. So we are called to dwell on the promises and in the presence of God. And we ask God, we ask him to, to silence the passions of our former ways. We ask him to show us the greater pleasure of his presence, to brighten our eyes to the glory of his majesty, to remind us of the stories that told of his faithfulness, for God to herald over us his wondrous deeds, to ask him to parade the gospel of his son before us again and again. Just like the Apostle Paul throughout his letters, we must remember the works of God in our lives. We must recall the promises of God over and over, and we must preach the gospel to our hearts when he seems far off. So we have seen that God is faithful even when we are not. And now we move to consider the faithfulness of God to his promises in comparison to the promises of this world. And here we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 7. And I want to read some of these verses again before we jump in. So here we're looking in our Bibles at verse 2, and we're going to read a few of those verses. Genesis 35, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, I put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The second lesson that this text teaches us is that the promises of God are not like the promises of man. The promises of God are not like the promises of man. You see, before this time in our text, Jacob was chasing after other promises. His whole life was an attempt to obtain something that God had already given to him. God promised Jacob several times that he would inherit a land, that he would have many children, and that he would be prosperous. And instead of trusting in those promises, he trusted in the works of his hands. 
But in our text, in these verses, a turn has happened in Jacob's life. In verses uh, 2 through 3, we get Jacob's command to his family, and 4 through 5 is the family's response. Jacob commands that they put away the foreign gods and to purify themselves. And and these are probably the gods that they took from, that um, Jacob's daughters took from Laban's house, or when Jacob's sons went and plundered that city, they probably took some gods with them. And so Jacob, um, you know, years later, which he should have done at the outset, right? Um, he tells them to put away these gods. And although this wasn't part of God's original command, Jacob knew that these gods were um, irreconcilable in the service of the one true God. So as a spiritual leader of his family, he gathers all these gods and he buries them under this tree. And then he commands his family to purify themselves and the, to change their clothing. Um, this signifies a, a moral transformation. You see, the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob is becoming their God. And it is only after that they do these things that they can go up to Bethel. And then our text says that as they traveled, the terror of God overshadows the cities so that Jacob's entourage would not have any potential opposition. And what this means is that what happened to Dinah would not happen to Jacob any longer. And so what do we, what do we learn from this? When we wander away from the promises of God, we wander to the promises of this world. You see, Jacob's weak leadership led his family astray, and his family led him astray. While we don't carry um, idols in our tents like they did, we carry them in our hearts. And Jacob knows, as he has always known, that they are contrary to God and must be put away. You see, there is no place for false gods in the presence of the true God. We cannot have a foot in the temple of Satan and a foot in the temple of the holy God. We are either fully indwelled by the Spirit of God or we are indwelled in the spirit of this world. And now I'm guessing, and this is an assumption here, that we don't have statues of Baals in our living room. And if you do, we have to talk after this. But I don't. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't have idols, right? Idols are anything that take our trust away from God. And we put our trust in these things, um, and they remove our trust from God, and we trust in those things for stability and and, and for um, pleasure and things like that. Um, some of us must, might trust in our 401k instead of the provision of God. Uh, some of us obsess over body image or having a nice car or having a nice house um, so that we can gain the affirmation of others instead of God. For me, it's the desire to be in control, to, to make sure that uh, my persona and that people make sure um, that they see the, the best parts of me. If it is a false God... It doesn't belong in the presence of the true God. And idols, church, will never satisfy. They keep us coming back, drinking water that will always keep us thirsty. And so we must ask ourselves, do we find ourselves pitching our tents in the cities of pagans or pitching our tents in the city of God? To keep our eyes on the promises of God, we must remember this, that the promises of God are not like 
the promises of man. God's promises are far greater. They are far grander. See, Jacob thought that he had a big family. Jacob thought that he had land. Jacob thought that he had wealth. But if he could only see the millions of people that would come from his family, if he could only see the height of the Israelite kingdom under King Solomon, if he could only see that the Savior of the world would come from his family, then he would have seen the foolishness, the utter foolishness of what he was trying to gain with his own hands. And this is our problem as well. You see, the the universe, whether we know it or not, is radiant with the majesty and the presence of God. But like Jacob, we are too blind to see it. We, we are so dull in our hearts to see God working in this world. We are like fish that have forgotten that we swim in water. But if we could just pull back the curtain of sin that blinds us, we would see as John Calvin says, the dazzling theater of divine glory around us. We would see the angels doing God's bidding throughout the world. We would see the divine orchestration of the cosmos, pregnant with the grace of God in our lives, upholding every aspect of our being every second of the day. But sin has blinded us in everyday church, Every day we sit and feast at the great banquet table of God and ignore the host. Like Jacob, when our sin prevents us from seeing the fullness of God's promises, we settle for crumbs in the bakery of heaven. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And it is because we settle too quickly. But when we trust and have faith in the promises of God, He has promised to take us to new heights and to new depths that we could never fathom. When we trust in the promises of God, a character is produced in the Christian life that could not be produced in any other religion or any other atheism. When we trust in the promises of God, there is not an obstacle that we cannot overcome. There is not a bondage that will not be broken. There is not an evil that will not work for our good. And there is not a dead body that God will not raise. But there is a sobering reality in this text as well. You see, there are many Christians that would say that we must clean up ourselves before coming to God. That somehow we must purify ourselves before coming into His presence. And they would say, look at Jacob. He had to put away the false god and and change their clothes. But Jacob was not trying to clean up his act. It wasn't as if his new clothes were going to change 15 years of sin. You see, church, there is no deed in this world that we can do to to cleanse us from sin unless it involves the plunging of our souls in the flood of Christ's blood. For Jacob, putting away the gods, changing his clothes, was an act of worship 
and rededication of his life in service of God. We don't clean ourselves up before coming to God. He cleans us up and then tells us to walk in obedience and in holiness. Now, just like Jacob had to bury his idols, we are called to bury our idols as well. And of course, um, this is a challenge, right? Um, It's hard to take the things of our life that are contrary to God and to bury them. But it's another thing in the Christian life to keep those things buried. Too often it seems in the Christian life that when we bury our idols, we tend to go back and visit them. Because God has not satisfied us as we thought he ought to. Or maybe because his promises uh, seem um, to come too slowly for us. And so we go and lay flowers on the graves of our buried gods. We play around with the idea of what would it look like to um, unbury those old passions just for a few moments and enjoy them. But how can we keep our eyes on the God of life and not on idols of death? Well, thankfully, God teaches us how to do this in this next section. You see, the last major point of this sermon and this text is this. While we wait on God, we must remember his promises. While we wait on God, we must remember his promises. And here we will be looking at verses 9 through 15. This section records God's first words to Jacob since he has come back to Bethel. God appears to him and he says this, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. You see, God has already renamed Jacob when he wrestled before meeting with Esau. So, so why is God renaming Jacob again, so it seems? God is reminding Jacob that when he returns to the promised land, he doesn't return as Jacob, but he returns as Israel. Jacob is not only called to bury his idols, but he's called to bury his former name. Jacob and his family have a new name to live up to. And this really shouldn't surprise us as Christians for how often do we forget our name? How often must we be reminded that we are children of God and not children of this world? How often do we have to be reminded that our home is not on earth, but it's in heaven? But after reminding Jacob of his new name, God reminds him of the promise that he gave to him earlier. He says to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you, and kings shall come from your body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I now give to you, and I will give you the land and the offspring after you. Now we have to really pay attention to this verse, and I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 11. And if someone could tell me the first four words that God speaks to Jacob in verse 11. What is it? I am God Almighty is what he says. God does not start with the promise, but he starts by self-identification. He says, I am God Almighty. Before the command of God is the revelation of God. You see, there is to be no misunderstanding of how Jacob is to carry out God's command. 
Unlike before where Jacob took things in his own hands, Jacob is now called to carry God's command in the power and almightiness of God. In other words, Jacob is powerless unless his obedience is united to God's almightiness. Then Jacob is commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and with 13 children, four wives, how much numerous can Jacob be? I mean, it sounds rather odd, and a few verses after our text, Jacob's wife is going to die, so he has a, his wife's going to die, he has 13 children, four wives, and what is God talking about here? What God has in mind is not more children, but a nation. And not just one nation, but a company of nations is what our text says. And he's not just talking about children, but he's talking about kings. You see, as long as Jacob was focused on obtaining the blessings and promises of God on his own timeline, he was never going to see what God had really intended the promises to be. You see, Jacob was focused on children while God was focused on making him into a company of nations. You see, Jacob needed to hear the promises of God again and again to get himself from looking at what was in front of him and to get him to look at who was above him. Church, if we could just lift up our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith, how different, how different would our lives look If we could turn our eyes from this world, from the desires of entertainment, from the allure of sexual fulfillment, from the desire of affirmation of other people, and turn to the promises of God again and again, what would become of us? What would it look like to trust God that he will never leave you or forsake you? What would it look like if you trusted God that he was good and that he is for you, that he has really forgiven your sins, that you, church, are free from guilt, free from shame, free from death, that he can sympathize with our weakness, that he can make all grace abound to us so that we will be sufficient in all things and at all tasks, that you would be raised and dwell with him for eternity. You see, Jacob needed to hear the promises of God repeatedly so that he could learn to live within the tension of promise and fulfillment. To be faithful while we wait, we must remember the promises of God and trust. So to conclude for this morning, the faithfulness of God and his promises is the only hope in the Christian life. God remains steadfast even when we do not. And his promises are sweeter than any promise this world could offer. In our waiting for their fulfillment, we must recall the promises of God and not the promises of this age. You see, the greatest expression of God's promise came 2,000 years in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who lived the life we were to live, who died the death we were to die. And as Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And the question that is set before us all this morning is will you trust in God? Will you trust 
in his promises? Will you trust in his provision? When he tells you, I am with you, will you trust him today?